Well, please do turn now to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. where we pick up this morning at verse 22, and we'll read through verse 38. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and is a sign that is opposed and a sword that will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our Lord will stand forever. In Isaiah chapter 40, as the Lord begins to address the Judeans now taken into exile in Babylon, the first word that He brings to them is a word of consolation. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. To these exiles forcibly removed from their homes and homeland because of their sin, because of their recalcitrance, refusing to hear and heed the generations of the prophets who had come to them and warned them that the wages of sin is death and that to continue in their sinful rebellion against God would be to forfeit the blessings of God. To these exiles, the first word that was to come to them as they bore the consequences of their sin and felt the weight of God's 
righteous judgment against them was a word of profound grace and mercy, a word of comfort, a, a tender word that was to reassure them that there was salvation to be found in the very same God who was against them in their sin. It's what we saw last week, wasn't it? In the promise of the incarnation of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember, we used that, that phrase from Sinclair Ferguson, he meditating on, on Romans 3, said the glory of Romans 3 is that the, that the holy God whom we have offended to the point of condemnation is the very God who delivers us from it. As you saw last week, that's, that's the glorious good news of the incarnation of the Son of God. That the very God whom we have offended in our sin to the point of, of rightful, just condemnation is in Jesus Christ, the very same God who delivers us from that condemnation. It's the story, you know it, that begins in Genesis 3, the wonderful juxtaposition of the, of the gospel. That while God is the one against whom we sin, the one who levies judgment against our sin, He is the same one who delivers us from that sin when we cast ourselves upon His mercy. The same God who brought the curse of death into the world because of our sinful rebellion against Him is the same God who clothed Adam and Eve in His grace and mercy with those animal skins, symbolically covering the shame that their sin had brought the same God who promised to them that a, a son would be born to Eve and that that son would crush the head of evil under his foot, the promise that while evil is powerful, God is more powerful, and in His sovereign strength, He would restrain sin and bring it to an end. Throughout Scripture, the promise of that same gospel repeated time and again to bring comfort to the people of God and to speak tenderly to them. That same gospel repeated again and again to console them, wounded and weary in this sin-sick world. But as glorious as those promises are, and as glorious as the repetition of those promises are from Genesis through Isaiah and everything in between and beyond, there is always a disconnect, always a dissonance, a dissonance, a disconnect between what was found on the pages of the Scriptures and what was heard through the mouths of the prophets and what was experienced by the people of God. And it wasn't that the Word of God did not prove true, but it was that that deep, profound comfort that it spoke of had not yet come. Yes, there was comfort in part. Of, of course, it was comforting for the exiles to hear the word of Isaiah and the promise that, that gloriously God was not done with them 
The promise that as bad as their sin was, it had not caused God to lose patience and, and simply cut them off. There was consequences for sure, but, but as a loving husband to the church, his bride, as a loving father to Israel, his son, in the midst of great judgment, there was great mercy to be found. How sweet those words must have been to the ears of those exiles. You can imagine them sitting, weeping in Babylon, and unrolling that scroll, almost wondering, if is there any point? Somebody had brought the scroll of Isaiah with them. Who had brought it? I don't know. Somebody had. And we could imagine them on that, on that travail, that, that journey out over the fertile crescent, how some must have mocked him. What are you bringing that for? There's no hope for us. We are condemned. We are cast out of the land of promise. We're back where Abraham had come from in the beginning. What are you bringing that for? But yet this godly exile unfolds that scroll, and he reads Isaiah 40, and you could imagine how, how it must have landed like a bomb. There's still hope for them. As bad as it was, there's still hope, God says, for them. There is still a word of comfort. There is still an assurance of pardon. The same for Adam and Eve. You think about their experience, those first days after the fall. The whole world literally collapsing around their ears. Everything that they had known about the way the world worked, not working like that anymore. The, the trees that, that once gladly even, and maybe if we anthropomorphize it, joyfully giving up their fruit for the nourishment of humanity, the, the image bearers of God, now suddenly Adam having to fight against creation to get it to yield up its food for him. By the sweat of his brow, fighting against thorns and thistles to wrestle the world into feeding him. Natural disasters coming into the world, this good world that was once at harmony, now profoundly disrupted. The reality of death. You imagine the existential crisis that must have gripped his soul. We have it, don't we? Those moments when you realize, I'm not going to live forever. That, that moment, it's been called recently, I think, the quarter-life crisis. You leave university, you graduate, and you suddenly realize, this is the rest of my life. Working for a paycheck five days a week and dying at the end of it right? We have those existential crises, and, and we should, right? It's one of the ministers of God's grace that reminds us that this world is not the way that it should be. It's one of the ways, right? C.S. Lewis says, if I, if I find myself longing for a world that does not exist, it teaches me that this is not the world for which I was made. But imagine that. Magnify it a thousand times. Adam didn't even have categories for this stuff. 
And he's having to come to terms with it. This world coming down around their ears and all of it he knows is because of his rebellion against the crown rights of God. How sweet it must have been for him to put that cloak on his back, crippled by the shame of his sin, and yet God in his grace, hand-making clothes to cover him. Or do you hear that promise that, yes, they're going to have to fight against this creation for it to yield them food, but yet the glorious good news is going to yield them food? Or the reality that childbearing now is going to come with great pain and distress, but they're still going to be childbearing. And through that childbearing, a Savior would be born into the world in the midst of the death that had entered the world because of sin. This glorious promise of life, these promises of life. Or to hear that promise of the final destruction of sin, the promise that as serious as their sin was, gloriously, God says, it hasn't opened Pandora's box. It hasn't released a force into the world that can never be contained again. No, God says it's, it's released a hateful force, a powerful force, a destructive force. But listen, it's finite. The day will come when it will be destroyed, when the head of evil will be crushed. Contained within it, that glorious promise that, that a day will come when the last tear has been shed. A day will come when the last hateful word has been spoken. The, the last day will come when someone dies because of disease or violence. It's finite. There will be a last of these things. They will not go on forever. And, and the Savior will usher in a new world in which there's no evil and only righteousness. That's all true and real and deep comfort. But yet the final reality always elusive. Sin still in the world after all of the glorious promises of, of Genesis 3. The people still in exile after the tender word of Isaiah 40. It's not that God was slow to fulfill His promises, it was just simply that the fulfillment was yet to come. It's what the godly in Israel had their hearts set on, not losing hope because of their circumstances, not losing patience as the Lord worked out redemption in His own timing, but rather with a godly perseverance, pressing on, looking for, and, and praying for the day when it would come to its final realization. That's what we saw of Zechariah and Elizabeth in chapter 1, wasn't it? Remember how Luke introduces them. Luke 1, 6, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, he's not saying that they're perfect. 
But what he is saying is that in the midst of cultural and religious confusion and conflict in a day when, when so many had abandoned the promises of the gospel or, or had twisted the law of God into nationalism or self-righteousness or bare ceremonialism, here was Zechariah and Elizabeth faithfully, patiently waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises and trusting Him. And it's what we're introduced to here as well, isn't it? with godly Simeon and, and Anna. The, the scene shifts. Luke brings us now into Jerusalem with Joseph and, and Mary as they come in obedience to Leviticus 12 for Mary to make her offering for purification after childbirth. It's about, it's about 40 days after the birth of, of Jesus, and Mary is ceremonially unclean after childbirth, and and she comes in to bring her sacrificial offering in obedience to Leviticus 12. But while Luke is careful to mention the obedience of Mary and Joseph to the requirements of the law and set the scene for us in verses 22 and 23 and 24 in terms of the fulfillment of Scripture and the fulfillment of the law surrounding our Lord's birth, even underlining it then in verse 39, telling us that they performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Luke really does it to set another scene for us. This isn't going to be about Joseph and Mary and their faithfulness, but rather he does it to bring us in to introduce us to Simeon and Anna. As the Holy Family come into the temple, they're greeted by these two individuals who, in the grace of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, grasp who Jesus is and what His arrival means. Kent Hughes called these two figures the embodiment of all that was good in Israelite piety. We can't help but, but look at them, I think, and see the epitome of of wholehearted devotion to God. But here's a, a man and a woman. They're, they're both elderly. Uh, we're not told how, how old Simeon is, but it's implied that he's of an advanced age and, and seemingly on the verge of, of death. Anna is is either 84 years old or, or 104 years old depending on, on how you translate and interpret verse 37, either is legitimate. Either way, she's a woman who's well past some 90s lifespan of three score years and ten, or by year of, or by means of strength, four score, right? These are two older saints, elderly saints, near the end of their lives, and they have not grown weary in well-doing. They had not grown jaded by the world around them. They had not taken their hearts off of the promises of God. They had not heard those words of comfort and let themselves grow into a discontent that the fulfillment had not yet arrived. Luke introduces us to them as, as a man and a woman of patient godliness. Like Zechariah and Elizabeth, they have been faithful, they are righteous, they are devout, they love the Lord, they love the Scripture, and they, they simply long to see its fulfillment. And as the Holy Family come into the temple, they are the ones who 
greet them, and they are the ones who understand and, and celebrate and worship the arrival of Jesus Christ. Here they are in the temple. They're, they're waiting for everything that the temple symbolized and, and pointed to. Everything contained in those wonderful words of comfort that God had given to His people, you understand, was embedded into the temple. The grace of God, the patience, and the mercy of God. We, we talk of it when we celebrate communion, don't we? That, that the Lord in communion has made the gospel visible for us. So that we don't just hear the gospel of the life and death and resurrection of our Lord, but we are invited to a table where we see it laid out for us. And we're able to, to taste it even. It's a grace of God's, it's a gift of God's grace that, that He would give it to us. You know, this is an aside, but, but Calvin in his institutes would even go so far as to say the reason why alcohol warms you as you drink it is for the very purpose of communion. That the Lord has created alcohol to do this so that when you sip that wine, you can feel the grace of God go down into you. Now, you might think that's too far, but it's a beautiful image, isn't it? Of the grace of God who knows how slow we are to grasp what He says. And so, He comes to us from every possible angle, teaching us of His grace, and you understand that was the temple. Right? Sometimes I think we, we so associate the temple with, with Phariseeism that, that we struggle to dislodge it from that, from that horrific legalism. And we rejoice in the destruction of the temple because, yes, it's the destruction of this legalistic, horrific twisting of everything that God had said. But you have to understand that the, God, the temple is a monument to God's grace. Everything, everything in those words of comfort were were solidified, embodied in that mortar and stone. It's a testimony to God's grace that, that He was Emmanuel. That despite their sin, despite their recalcitrance, despite their rebellion, despite their slowness to believe, yet here, first God in the tabernacle pitches His tent in the midst of them, and then in the temple solidifies His dwelling place so that there is no chance that God might up sticks and leave. But He dwells with them, in and among them. It's a symbolizing of the hope of Genesis 3.15. The promise that evil would be defeated and the people of God would be brought back to dwell with God. Even contained within its architecture, the imagery of the, of the garden saying to Israel, there you will come home, you will be brought back to paradise. The, the, the weavings of the, of the curtains of the tabernacle all reflecting the garden. The, the temple standing with the pillars of Boaz and Jacob, those great trees that stood there saying, you will be brought back to a garden to dwell with God again. It's not the solution to their problem. The priest, the ceremony, is the altar. It stood, of course, as a great barrier between the people and the entrance to the holy place. That altar standing as a burning witness to how the sinfulness of man had brought a, a horrid division between us and a holy God. But yet, 
the sacrifices offered on it, the priests who went from the altar inside the holy place testified to that grace of God and anticipated a greater sacrifice yet to come that would finally and fully put away the guilt of our sin and reconcile us to God. Everything about the temple spoke of that gospel hope. Everything about it spoke of the comfort of, of God's grace towards His people. And so, so Simeon and Anna, these aged, pious Israelites, spending their days at the temple, I think we have to imagine them spending their days there, meditating on everything that it represented and signified meditating on the faithfulness of God to His people, meditating on the, on the long-suffering and, and uh, patience of God towards His people, meditating on the steadfast love and covenant faithfulness of God that, that enabled those gospel promises to roll on through the ages despite our best attempts to stop them. Here they are coming in day by day, day, soaking in those words of comfort as they know them from the Scriptures, and soaking in this architecture that taught it to their, to their eyes. We can imagine it, I think, can't we now? Now, don't think of the stalls and the money changers that Jesus would, would drive out later, right? That market is not yet within the temple. It's still on the Mount of Olives. That market wouldn't be brought in until about A.D. 30 when Caiaphas would do it in a complicated power play. So, don't think of that kind of busyness, but, but it's still, you understand, a place that is full of life. Jerusalemites coming in and out, coming to worship, coming to bring their sacrifices. You would see weary pilgrims with the dust of the road still on them, having made that long journey to Jerusalem, and now we could imagine them falling on their knees. Here they are, at the center of their hope. Think about the priests constantly going about their business. What is it the writer of the Hebrews tells us? That the priests never sat down. They stood daily at their service because their work was never finished. Imagine those priests always at work in the background. They're clothed in white and, and bringing those animals and sacrificing them and the preparing them from the altar. Imagine that smoke rising from the altar and probably wafting through the courts of the temple. Remember, there's no chimney over the altar, so that, that smoke like a, like, a, like a barbecue would just be, would be falling down and floating through the through the recesses of the temple. Think about the bleating of the sheep in the, in the background. But in contrast to all that busyness and, and overstimulation are two godly saints, aged saints standing distinct. If we thought about it cinematically, we could imagine the noise and the movement of the crowds fading away. And these two, Simeon and Anna, Simeon and Anna standing quietly contemplating the service of the priests and the sacrifices offered and the symbolism of the architecture, contemplating those Gentiles coming in, now only so far, but yet coming into the temple of God. These two advanced in age, standing to the side, praying, verse 38, for the redemption of Jerusalem, play, praying that they would see as the Holy Spirit had revealed to them that they would see the the final and full salvation of Israel, praying that they would see the day when expectancy gave way to reality, praying 
that they would know the consolation of Israel, that those promises would not just be promises anymore, but that they would know that comfort of God's people as that long-awaited salvation arrives. And as Joseph and Mary enter into the temple with the infant Jesus in their arms, they are just, just a family of three in a crowd of multitudes. But through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Simeon and Anna are led to them. And they behold in this little child the embodiment and fulfillment of all their hopes, the hopes and fears of all the years met in this little child. And as Simeon takes Jesus into his arms, he prays to God, it's not a prepared prayer. It's the overflow of a joyful heart. And he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he wouldn't die until he beheld, beheld the Lord's Christ. And now as he does, as he gazes into the eyes of this little baby, his heart bursts, and he rejoices, and he gives thanks to God, not just that he has beheld the Savior, but that in him, in this baby, the salvation of the world has come. This child, he declares, he proclaims, we can imagine proclaiming it for any and all to, to hear Him. This, this child is a Savior of Jew and Gentile alike, a Savior who has come not just in the presence of, of Israel, but in the presence of all peoples to bring a salvation that is universal in its scope, a Savior who has come not just for the descendants of Abraham, but who has come for the descendants of Adam. It's what the angel said to the shepherds, isn't it? In verse 10, fear not, the angel says, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, Simeon, his years of meditation on the covenant promises, his years of meditation on the words of comfort that God had given to his people, his years of meditation in the temple and all that those stones testified to, it has all now come to its glorious head and to this glorious exclamation that here in this child that he beheld in his arms has come the fulfillment of it all, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory, the glory of Israel. It's what Anna celebrates as well as she gives thanks to God and proclaims that in Jesus has come the long-awaited redemption of Jerusalem. It's just another way of saying the same thing, another way of describing the consolation of Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, Jerusalem is paradigmatic of the entire people of God. Right? Do you remember we saw it when we went through Isaiah? You know it, of course, famously from Revelation 21, 22. Jerusalem, the metaphor for the, for the people of God. That fate of Jerusalem and the prophets, the metaphor for the fate of the people of God. In Revelation 21, that whole new creation being encapsulated by the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. 
what Hannah understands. That's what she's celebrating. Her lifetime of prayer and fasting, her lifetime of meditation and wonder now bearing out in this glorious realization that it has all come in Jesus Christ. That the redemption of Israel, the, the full salvation of the people of God that the prophets looked and longed for has now come. The words of hopeful comfort, no longer future, but now present. That's what Luke wants us to see. Carefully, deliberately, he has built this opening section of his gospel to lead us to behold the wonder of the incarnate Son of God. Remember how we described it a few weeks ago that we could maybe say that Luke's gospel is the most, the most literary of the four gospels. Luke, having gathered his evidence and and compiled it together. And remember, he describes it at the beginning as this orderly account. He has crafted this because he wants us to grasp it. And so, in these opening chapters, he has built scene upon scene to develop in our minds and our hearts layers of understanding, knitting together prophetic expectation and covenant theology and evocative scenes. You could almost think about it like a, like a 3D printer, Right, you've, you've seen those, that, that you take a digital image and you put it in and, and this printer will build it out of plastic or I think even concrete now. And the way these printers work is that they make hundreds of passes over the same area. And with every pass, they put down a little more material each time until the, the whole object comes together. That's what Luke's doing. He's going over the same area time and again, time and again, sometimes in ways that are being very similar, but sometimes adding new details, new nuances, but all of it adding up to this glorious picture that the, that the consolation of Israel is now at hand in Jesus Christ, that here in the arrival of Christ, the, the comfort and peace of God's people has finally and fully come. No longer that promise of rest to come, no longer that promise of salvation that will arrive, but now that rest realized. That's what Luke wants us to see. He knows how buffeted we are in this present world that is full of sin. He knows what it is to be trapped in the exhausting treadmill of idolatry where satisfaction is always just one more step away. He, he knows what it is to live in that Cain-like world of being a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, always looking for peace but never finding it. But remember, Luke, we we think is a, is a later in life convert. He's not one of the apostolic band. He, he came to, to faith through the missionary endeavors of the church. So, this is, this is not a man who, who for a long time was in the milieu of, of Jesus and the gospel. That This is a man who has been, who has been saved. Right? Luke, Luke knows what it is for his spirit to be fast bound in nature's night. He knows what it is then to behold God's quickening ray. He, he knows what it feels like to, to have his chains fall off and his heart released and to go forth and 
and follow Christ. He knows it. He, he knows our world. He knows our life. And, 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 he, and he knows this comfort. And he wants us to know it too. Now, now there is a preciousness, of course, to, to forensic justification. Right? There is a, a preciousness to that to that Romans 3 glorious gospel that, that, that you were once a debtor in your sin, but now in Jesus Christ the debt has been paid. There is, there is glory to that gospel accounting, that, that once everything that stood in your account was against you, but now in Jesus Christ, it is all for you. There's glory in, in that forensic double exchange, isn't there? That, that great exchange, our sin put on Christ, His righteousness put on us. It's, it is glorious, and we must rejoice in it and meditate on that. But what Luke really wants us to get here is the experiential aspect of that gospel. He wants us to see that this isn't just a spiritual transaction, but that this gospel comes with a deep experience of profound comfort. That's the gospel to you this morning, the gospel of peace and rest the gospel of reconciliation with God, the gospel of salvation from your sins, the gospel that in Jesus Christ you can rest from trying to earn your own salvation, from trying to be enough or do enough. You can rest from that endless quest for satisfaction and security, for peace and for joy, and that in Jesus Christ you can simply come to Him and be still. That's what Luke wants you to see. He wants you to experience what Simeon and Anna experience when they behold Christ, an experience of, of consolation, of comfort, an experience of peace and, and rest. But he wants you also to understand that, that you can only find that if you come to him in faith and dependence. It's what Simeon means when he says in verse 34 that this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. It's the solemn truth that in order to gain the benefits of Christ, you must bow in humiliation and in poverty of spirit before Him. It's what Jesus said, wasn't it? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Read it backwards. Right? One of my favorite tricks in, in biblical study, read it backwards. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, come to me and you will find life. Come to me and and, and give up your life, and you will find a greater life. Come to me and give up your vain efforts at trying to save yourself, and, and you, will be, you will be granted eternal life. It is, it's, it's this, isn't it? You will receive comfort for your souls. But what does he say? 
only if you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That's what Simeon's saying. To obtain this comfort and peace, we have to put down our weapons of rebellion against God and His rule. We have to admit and confess that we are not enough, that we are not God, and that we are wholly dependent upon Him for everything. More than that, that we must confess that in our sin we are actively fighting against the one in whom alone peace and joy can be found. We have to admit that we have been fools in our sin. We must fall before we can rise to life in Jesus Christ. We must fall before we can be granted new life in Jesus Christ. It's humbling. But the promise is, the glorious promise is that in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, you will always receive far more than you could ever lose. In Jesus Christ, you will gain the very thing for which your heart deeply and profoundly and forever longs, you will receive the peace that your heart craves. That's this scene. These aged saints come now to the fore to proclaim that the consolation of God's people is now here in Jesus Christ. Here in Jesus Christ is the one who has come to crush the head of sin, as the promise said to deal the death blow to evil. Here in Jesus Christ is the one who has come to bring His people back from the captivity of their sin. Here in Jesus Christ is the King who has come to bring His people into the fullness of His glorious kingdom, free from sin and free from the effects of sin. Let us pray.